Hi, my name is Anne McElhaney. And I'm Philem McAleer. Welcome to the Anne and Philem Daily Virus. It's actually the Anne and Philem Scoop Daily, Daily Virus. Virus. And it's Thursday, where, July the 16th. Where we discuss the latest news, views, advice, madness of the pandemic. Uh, it's, as you're saying, it's Thursday, July the 16th, uh, week 17th of the two-week flatten the curve lockdown. Don't forget, they lied. They told us this was going to be a two-week flatten the curve. And now we're suddenly talking about cases, the number of cases. They knew there was going to be a large number of cases. The idea was to spread those cases out over the 17 weeks uh, to have the, the, in fact, to have the increase now so that we had more ventilators, which we do have. There's no shortage of ventilators, no shortage of ICU beds, but we're talking about a lockdown again. Yeah, we'll we'll be bringing you all of that, and we'll you know we're going to bring you a lot of statistics. Well, and we have you to we it. have we have been bringing you a lot of statistics over the last while, um, in the in the in the seventeen weeks that we've been doing this, and there's a lot of great people out there gathering statistics and and looking, and and really telling the truth. And we've decided now we'll start bringing those people to you. So rather than hearing us uh, going forward, we're going to bring you. We're going to do interviews now, and you're going to hear people who are getting up every day and trying to unravel the, the media malpractice and the scaremongering. So you, I think you really love who we've lined up as our first guest. But first, before that, I want to really, really bring you the story. It really tickles a number of my fancies, uh, <laughs> the, the media hoax uh, industry. So it's from actually the, the, the national. I noticed the story at the time and I meant to mention it. I meant to say this sounds like a hoax to me. It just when Philem says that, um, and he says it quite often, um, I don't remember you ever being wrong. Yes. Where Philem says something doesn't sound right about that. It might be just too convenient a story, as it is in this case. Yeah, so this is the story that was in the New York Times. And it was, you know, about a 30-year-old man whose, whose last words to his doctor were, uh, um, I, I, I think I made him, he went to a COVID-19 party, got the disease, and told his doctor, Dr. Appleby, uh, Dr. Jane Appleby of the Methodist Hospital in San Antonio told his doctor, I think I made a mistake. I thought this was a hoax, but it's not. And then he died. And, you know, uh, he died after, shortly afterwards. And this, you know, I think National Review outlined the reasons why they, they were suspicious of it. I was just suspicious of it because it just summed everything up. It was just too neatly packaged. It was everything that the left want to believe, which yes. was, you know, young people die. Right. So that, yeah. So, but for me, it was, it was also, it was just too Hollywood, too cinematic. The last dying declaration of a man. Uh, and then there was a sort of thing was, why is this doctor breaching this client Patient-doctor confidentiality. Doctor-patient confidentiality. It just struck me as really weird. And if, if she had got permission from the family to breach this confidentiality, wouldn't the family be saying something? You'd, right? You'd think you know, so. the family, uh, if the family were, you know, had allowed her to say it, they'd be so upset. Brand, Michael Brandon-Durgerty uh, of National Review, sort of his antennae was twitching again. The reasons he felt it was uh, suspicious was a young person, you know, check, you know, oh, we got a well, young person. The media is salivating for a person to die in a red state. Young. In a yeah. red state. Uh, and he believed the, uh, the, the, the virus was a hoax and failed to socially distance. And as a result, he's dead. And uh, the, the original headline, sub-headline in the New York Times, he pointed out was, I thought this was a hoax. The man told his nurse, a hospital official said. But actually, if you, there's somebody else who thinks it might be a hoax now. 
and that is the New York Times, because they've been quietly stealth editing uh, the story. The original story was straight down. Now, Dr. Appleby, Dr. Jane Appleby, uh, issued this, and there was a video of her, and the hospital released the video, her recounting this. Now, the, the ethics of running a story with one source you know, I'm not as, as, as puritanical as some people in the media world. You can run it with one source if it's a, if it's a reliable source. And a Which doctor, seemed to be a very reliable a source. A doctor in a hospital is a reliable source. But, you know, you need to then say the family were not available. She refused to give any details. You know, all this. But now the New York Times are running big time back on the story. But one thing they're not doing is they're not posting corrections at the bottom of the story to tell how they uh, quietly edited it. And uh, they're really editing it. And, you know, the, the, the subheading went from, uh, the subheading went from, I th the subheading is the little headline that comes onto the main headline. The subheading went from, I thought this was a hoax, the man told his nurse, a hospital official said. The subheading now is, health experts have been skeptical that such COVID-19 parties occur and details of this case could not be independently verified. So it's a complete walk back. So they're pointing out there's been all these reports of students having COVID-19 parties, but when people have tried to find them, nothing's happened. The, the, despite numerous attempts by the Times to get in touch with the family, they will not get in touch with, with them, through the, and they can only go through the hospital. Uh, there's been no further comment. The hospital spokesperson says they don't, um, they don't know the details of the case. They've only got it from Dr. Appleby. So... Hoax, 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 hoax. And talking of hoaxes, actually, you know, talking of bad use, the media's bad use of scare stories and anecdotes to tell a wider story that they want to tell. Uh, let's go now to our, just, our interview uh, that we're going to have. It's with Justin Hart, who has really been at the forefront of exposing the, the dodgy, um, you know, the, really the dodgy statistics and media porn that has been driving so much of the overreaction uh, of and devastating politics of, of the lockdown of the pandemic. You know? He really is someone you need to follow to get the truth about COVID-19 and you can find him at Justin underscore Hart, H-A-R-T and Justin J-U-S-T-I-N. He's a data expert and his Twitter bio says he's been unraveling COVID-19 fears one chart at a time. And one of the things we really like about Justin Hart is he, are his charts, by the way, which are really instructive, full of really great data points, some of which are not being highlighted by the main, mainstream media, but you should be aware of. Um, and according to his Twitter bio, he lives at the intersection of AI, machine learning and marketing. So we recorded this interview earlier, but let's go to the interview now. Thank you very much. We're joined by Justin Hart. Thank you so much, star of Twitter. <laughs> Hardly, but uh, we try hard, at least. Yeah. Good to I see think you. I, I, I've been, we've been following you, obviously, on Twitter. And obviously, you're, you're, would you consider yourself a data nerd, Justin? Very, very nerdy, and uh, I try to make data my thing. Yeah. But uh, all, all things to considered, it's been a, a crazy ride, and I'd be glad to be part of it, or at least contribute yeah. something to it. Well, thank you. And we really appreciate um, what you're doing. So why, how did you get started with the COVID-19 data? How did you get started exploring that COVID-19 data, looking into the information that is being shared on, on media and stuff like that? What happened? You know, I'm just south of you here in San Diego. And about two years ago, I, I had a cut and I was on the beach with my family 
and it turned into a staph infection. You know, staph is that natural flora that you have on your skin, but if it gets into your bloodstream, then some crazy things can happen. And I was hospitalized for two weeks, and I wanted to know, like, what was this crazy small thing that just took my almost took my life? So it became sort of a side hobby for me. And professionally, I'm a data analyst uh, and uh, business sort of uh, uh, consultant. So I, when this thing came up, I said, all right, I think I know a lot about this because I looked at influenza. I looked at a lot of these uh, viral aspects of it. And then something didn't make sense. The numbers just didn't quite add up right. And in business, you know, I'm used to working in what we call a funnel, right? You, you get your leads at the top, and then those turn into potential prospects for customers, then those turn into actual customers and uh, paying customers and everything else. And the same thing happens with influenza. You get so many people who have some symptoms and some of them have to go to the hospital and some of them unfortunately die. And when I saw all the funnel numbers, I said, something is off here because these, these things are not adding up correctly the way I would expect them to in that sort of funnel. Well, can, can you describe that? Can you describe to us and to our listeners, you know, just how the media uh, uh, and, and others have misled the public in the presentation of the data? Yeah, you know, it's a natural consequence of basically adding a, a buzzer to the back of our heads every time uh, something happens around a particular infection. If we did this every year with influenza, for example, we would go stark crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a, a few years ago, there were about 44 million people who uh, we think had symptoms and maybe contracted influenza. 22 million of those people back in that funnel went to the doctor and checked it out and see if they had it. Another 800,000 people went to the hospital and had to be hospitalized. And of that, maybe 40 to 100,000 people died that year in 2018, one of our worst flu seasons. But we never thought twice about it because we didn't have that constant sort of dashboard. And I I wrote an article early in March that the coronavirus dashboards will kill us all long before the virus ever will. Yeah. One of the problems is just having our our ear to the ground constantly 24-7. And the side effect of that is also that we're expecting these numbers, which are very slow in coming back. If you've ever been to the doctor, if you've ever been to a county office or a state office and asked the DMV to provide you information, you know that they're very slow in coming back with that information. And we're expecting these viruses, these this virus data to come to us overnight like ballots, right? And so we shouldn't be surprised when we sort of upturn the world of viral data and we end up with the equivalent of hanging chads in a big bag of votes in Broward County, you know? Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about the, the, the flu statistics. If we had a buzzer at the back of our head, every time someone got the flu, we'd, we'd be driven crazy. I remember, I think it was, I mean, it shows you, I don't even kind of, I think it was maybe five years ago, we were doing the, the premiere of Frack Nation in New York. And uh, oh, we, yeah. were, we were teaming up with a, a not-for-profit, uh, the Manhattan Institute. And uh, we went to New York. Magda got flu and was knocked out. Magda, And then the person I was dealing with in Manhattan Institute, got flu and had to drop out. Yep. The person that replaced her got flu and had to drop out. And the person who replaced him had to got flu and dropped out. And I was I was on my fourth person all within a couple of weeks, and we oversold by you know two or three times because the flu was knocking out so many. But also, I mean, but, but you know, my, my point about that is I can't remember what year that was. Yeah. 
I don't, you know, you know. But I was like, going to say, I, I don't remember Magda. I mean, it was like one of the sickest times she's ever been. And and, and, and yet we all kind of forget about it. And, you yes. know, that the, the world didn't come to an end. And obviously she was an example of, of a lot of people who got ill that time. So, so, so should we be worrying about the skyrocketing case numbers? Oh, yeah, the skyrocketing explosion in cases. Surge, explosion. Yeah, look, you know, this is a new virus. So there are some challenges that come with it. Um, what's what's. You know, I think in, in my own mind, I was fine with taking those two weeks uh, and just saying, let's take a pause and let's see if we can figure out what's going on. When we went to the 30 days and now 60, 90, 100 plus days of shutdown, that's when things just got out of control. And, and so I, I think when we when we look at the numbers, you, I think everyone's going to latch on to any sort of um, burst or any sort of surge because, you know, you there's a natural maybe human tendency i'm being kind to everyone right now and saying these things but there's a natural human tendency to say i want to i want to feel like my sacrifice was worth it right mm -hmm. like if if this virus is really you know the the pandemic bird box uh contagion that everyone makes it out to be i, I want that's what my my sacrifice feels like so i'm going to be rooting for maybe that in the end so I'll, I'll, that's the kindest thing i can say the worst thing I can say is that they're completely misreading the numbers and that they're getting all the data wrong. Uh, so in Florida, for example, uh, we have the issue where a big host of younger cohorts, a younger demographic, are getting the disease. And part of that is just the natural affinity of kids saying, look, I, I don't really care anymore. I know my risks and everything else, and they're risky kids takers anyways. And thankfully, um, COVID has spared our youth largely. And, mm. and if you're under the age of 45 even, uh, your chances of dying of COVID, according to Professor Ioannidis of Stanford, are basically zero. If you're under the age of 65, he calculates that your risks are about the same if you were driving on your commute to work. And if you're over the age of 65, it's slightly higher. It's as if you're driving as a professional trucker to work. That's just sort of context that we can all understand. And mm -hmm. so the risks are relatively low for all this thing. And here in California, we had the same issue. It's a really interesting piece because uh, a lot of states have different types of data sets. So Florida is really good at giving us all the data in one big line. California is good at getting us a lot of interesting data, for example, on race and age. Uh, so a month ago in the Latino community, between the ages of 18 and 34, they were the largest cohort. They had about 17,000 cases. A month later now, they're at 40 thousand cases. So a huge uptick in that demographic, which is the largest demographic across all the stratifies of race and age. And, and you know, it's a family oriented culture and you're not really going to stop families from gathering on the 4th of July. And so, but here's the really interesting thing. A month ago, out of that cohort, 18 to 34 Latinos, there were 34 deaths. Today, a month later, the cases doubled and there are 50 deaths. So mm -hmm. an uptick of just 16 deaths. That's statistically an anomaly. It doesn't doesn't really count. And so we know that even though the cases go up, the question is not how many, it's who is getting infected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting as well that the media seem to focus at, you know, at the beginning when the numbers, the de the deaths were very, you know, they were they were large numbers. There were scary large numbers in New York, particularly. You know, everyone talked about death, and it's very interesting. It's a, it reminds me a little bit of uh, what was it, global warming, which became climate change. So we went from deaths now to this thing called cases. Well, well, originally we went from tests. When the deaths were low, actually, the media talked about why aren't we doing more tests? Then we 
we ramped up the testing. Then it was, oh, look at the large number of deaths. Now that, as you say, the deaths have have really are grinding slowly to a halt. Um, now we're talking about the number of cases. And cases, can you dig in a little bit into the cases thing? Um, because for, tell us what what is a case? Well, a, a case would be someone that tests positive for COVID. And, um, you know, ideally what you would do is you would track that person and you'd be able to not, and you'd be able to put a toggle and say, oh yes, this person contracted it on a specific date. You'd also be able to say, well, they went to the hospital on this specific date and unfortunately they passed away on this date. Well, most states keep those in three separate databases and you have no idea of knowing what's going on. And some states equivalent, you know, they, they equivocate test to case as well. So for example, if I'm a doctor and I've heard this on numerous occasions and I contract COVID, which is very common in many cases, I have to get two pause, uh, negative tests in a row before I can return to work, okay? But there is no system in place in most states where they'll be able to, as we say in the data world, dedupe those, right? Or be able to identify that that's the same person. So it's possible the person, and I, I have the exact case file, someone goes in five times, they tested positive, 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 negative, negative, and now that counts as three cases, right? And so it, it, it's, a, it's a really unfortunate way. We don't know kind of how that, that digs out there. And also, what, the other thing that happens is the cases tend to lag and build up towards the present. Uh, I gave the example of I, I ran to my kid the other day, and he's sitting in his room, and he's got a big bag of Starburst candy. And the bag is empty. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy, right? Uh, but, you know, I, I know he didn't eat them all in one day. And let's say he was very dutiful and he, you know, put a note as to which date it came in and everything else there. And so this one was on uh, July 1st. This was, and I ate 10 of them on July 4th and another couple to yesterday, right? But all I see walking into the room is the big bag of candy wrappers. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see on the dashboards. We see a huge spike, for example, in 120 new deaths or 10,000 new cases in Florida. Well, the true number of cases have never riven, risen over about 7,000, 8,000 in Florida on a specific day. The rest of those are layered into the past, just like when my son ate his candies. And that's a it's a difficult concept because you have to understand that, you know, data just kind of peters up and we finally get it from all these different counties that all have their different reporting systems. We get it in one big batch, but it actually layers like a blanket over the timeline into the past. But just just to rem again ask on. on so a case doesn't each one of those numbers when they talk about a cases some huge number of cases is not necessarily individual people it could actually there could be repetition in there is that correct absolutely yeah in well, fact, that's incredibly dishonest the, yeah florida is one of the few states that actually has all the case line data in a row which is really cool because you can see here is a person they're 83 year old from broward county and they got it on this date and then but, but here's where they start failing. They tell me, oh, they went to the hospital, great, and they died. Oh, that's sad, I'm sorry about that. But they don't give us the dates for those last two. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm left guessing, are they part of that 120 deaths or are they part of this one? So it's, it's really difficult to see. But the cool thing about Florida data and a couple other states is that they've, because they've anchored it to the first infection date, as close as they can get, or when the person was prognosed, when the prognosis came in, now we can see those things in a column because we could say, well, here are all the March cases in April, May, June, July. How are they all faring since we have an anchor to say, oh, this person went to the hospital and this mm -hmm. person died. Mm -hmm. And what you see is that the 
case fatality rate is going down and down. So not only are the cohorts going younger and younger, and COVID has to work 10 times harder to kill them, but the CFR in general, because our treatments are better, because people are uh, you know, courageously sort of putting themselves aside and say, I'm gonna quarantine myself because I'm at risk. Now we know a lot more about the disease and it's a, it's a good case altogether. More testing, a younger cohort, better treatments is fantastic. And I think, I mean, I, we always talk here on this show about the fact that, you know, large, whatever, large number of cases that they talk about all the time, but the number of people who are dying, and obviously every death is an incredible tragedy, but the numbers are very, very small. You know, they're incredibly small. We were just up in Sonoma County, where in total, 16 people have died in Sonoma County of COVID-19, yet they have an enormous number of restrictions on businesses, um, et cetera. And it's, kind it's of reintroduced them, actually, as yeah, well. Yeah, know. they've closed down all the tasting rooms. The wineries have a huge number of restrictions. Hotels, I think, can only fill up to 50 percent capacity. All kinds of ludicrous like that, even though these numbers are tiny for deaths, which is, I, would you agree that deaths is the, is the really significant number that we should all be looking at? Absolutely. Uh, obviously, hospitalizations have an impact, as the CDC calls them, a burden on society. But deaths are really the the, the big piece there. And, and we are. We're, and you mentioned counties, and, and it's important to recognize counties, because you think of there are 3,143 counties in the United States across the board, okay? About 2,000 of those have reported deaths, one or more, over the course of this whole pandemic. At the high point of this pandemic, there were 400 counties um, or 400 individual counties who were counting five or more deaths per day. And that was at the peak in April there. We are down now to about 152. And the last count I had was 33 counties, only 33 counties. So if you think of the counties as sort of uh, data beacons that are out there, a bunch of data beacons are going dark, which is why we know that the virus is tapering down, because there are just fewer and fewer uh, counties out there reporting deaths. One of the things that you've, I mean, you know, extraordinary, that's extraordinary information. I mean, and, 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 and great news. And it's great news. And But unfortunately, into the midst of that, we have here, for example, in um, in L.A. County and in most of, I think, in all of, all of Southern California, the schools will be closed on, and they will not open until next year. And I know you've written um, and you've been looking at this whole really dark, scary um, very depressing news about the amount of suicide that there is among young people. And it's something that we look at every every time we have this the daily virus that we talk about. Um, can you talk to us about the school lockdowns um, and what and what's happening there with, with young people? Yeah, look, you and I, and, and we, we can all kvetch on, you know, the six months of our life that we've lost here. Uh, but it, we'll bounce back. Our, our brains are pretty sold into what we've what we've been doing the last couple of years, right? These kids, their brains, their maturity, the way they interact with life, it's still developing. And, and I put it in this way, you know, they say you need about 10,000 hours to become proficient in something, a, a subject, a talent, an instrument, everything else. Consider this, that the average student has lost almost 1,000 hours of in-classroom time over these past months and will lose more going into the fall. And that's stuff you can't regain. And it's impactful, whether it's you know, th this kid's not going to have those uh, extra six months to compete on a physical level with um, some some team that he wants uh, or intellectually on some debate team. There's there's lots of things that that these kids are really losing out on. Uh, you know, we know that teen suicides are a pretty big portion. I think they're actually the third highest killer 
um, of teens in the country. About 3,000 to 5,000 uh, teenage high schoolers kill themselves every year, take their own lives. And a simple, and we, we also know that there are about 20, 20 high schoolers who have died over the course of the age of COVID here. A simple 1% uptick in teen suicides will completely eclipse all of the COVID deaths from that same age bracket. And that's, that's, a, that's an impact that we have to consider. Mm-hmm. And look, I know there's liabilities around this, and we're thinking about the teachers and everything, but really the risks are so very low. And we really need to think about like the, the long-term impacts that this has on our, on our kids, because they're the ones that are really looking towards us as well. Um, it, it, you know, unlike influenza, which uh, really does impact kids. In fact, there have been 10 times as many kids killed from influenza and pneumonia this year as there have been COVID. It's not even close. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and don't see articles on those tragic deaths or anything else there. Uh, and, and so we need to think about the larger good for our, our, our kids. And they are first, they're, they're not transmitters of the disease. We know that. A, uh, a study just came out of Germany showing that um, kids can actually be a break to the disease, that is they, a stopgap because they don't easily transmit it as well. And we know that um, these these kids don't suffer from it like us adults do. A, a part of that is just about biology and where your ACE2 receptors are. And part of it might do with you know previous immunizations and of course our T cell uh, manufacturing of, of, of natural antibodies that come from the common cold that kids have. It's just, it's a really unfortunate case we've put ourselves into to even consider not bringing our kids back to school. It's, yeah. it's really sad. It's, 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 a, it's a time bomb that's, that hasn't gone off yet, or maybe is going off, but it's been completely ignored. Yeah, well, we've, heard, we've heard stories of, of, of people with, you know, with teenage kids who just kind of burst into tears, you know, and, uh, you know, I think the isolation is an unbelievable burden for parents. What are parents going to do that have to go back to work I mean, leaving children at home alone? I mean, it's just, it's beyond belief, really, that well, this, particularly given the context, as you say, of the way the numbers are actually going. Yeah, and consider in, in Los Angeles County, where you were there, uh, 32% of kids in that district never logged on to a single online case never logged on to a class 32 percent of them a third of the students never logged on and so they just lost six months of, of school right there and, and you know part of that is perhaps even uh you know economic they didn't have access to computers or to high-end networks or anything else there to do zoom calls and part of it was just like why would i spend my time doing this this is crazy i'm not getting anything out of it i'm going to go on the streets and we yeah. see that again and again. And so it's a it's a huge impact. We need to get these kids back to school. You, you can be sure too that that thirty two percent a lot a lot of them are the people who need to be in class more so than than the yeah. probably the, the other. We've we've a lot of topics we'd love to talk to you about, but we don't want to keep you too long. But one question we definitely want to ask you about is: there's been an awful lot of talk about Sweden, and and I know you've written a lot about Sweden and you've been tweeting out. And we're going to remind everyone of how to find you, by the way, at the end of this interview at Justin underscore Hart, and I'll spell H A R T. H A R T will spell that out. But um, tell us about Sweden because Sweden, you know. There, obviously, there's a lot of media who are throwing Sweden under the bus at every possible opportunity. What's the true story in Sweden? Well, look, well, uh, well, I think... Actually, yeah, just let me explain. Sweden didn't lock down, uh, we should tell people. That's right. Yeah, Sweden, you know, they, they did it differently. They appealed to people's social responsibility, asked for social distancing, but didn't lock down their economy, didn't close up their economy, uh, unlike America did and most of the rest of the world. And the media has been being portrayed in Sweden as a disaster. So tell us the truth. Yeah, well, you you remember the 
the the phrase that was so prominent a few months ago, which was flatten the curve, right? Yes. And everyone remembers the big hill and the, the, the big curve, if you will, and the small curve, right? But the, the, the problem that people didn't realize is that that wasn't about lowering deaths, right? You still have the same amount of deaths. Exactly. You're just lengthening it over time. And what Sweden opted to do is, look, these are going to happen. We need to get through this and not impact our society in a negative way. And you're seeing it now. I think what we're going to see is that Sweden will get through this very quickly. Um, we've come to find out that there is a natural immunity that we may have in cross immunity with T cells from the common cold, which is why you see when the pop, when the, the virus gets to about 20% of the population, it seems to peter out, according to uh, Nobel laureate Michael Levitt. And, and that might be an indication that you don't need 60 or 80% for herd immunity. You may need only 15 or 20%, which is where a lot of our communities are. The, the big misnomer is that you can beat the virus. You, you can't. You can't beat a virus. It's going to do what it's going to do. You, you can't really hide from it even. Uh, we, we, we know this from past history. There was a, a researcher in Antarctica didn't have contact with anyone and got the cold, right? And so it got the influenza. And so I, what we need to know is that this thing is going to do what it's going to do. The best thing you can do is protect yourself, get yourself healthy, protect those that are the most vulnerable and get through it as quickly as you can without disrupting life dramatically because disrupting it is just going to lengthen it out. So Sweden opted for the bigger curve. But even when you compare that by population to New York's curve, Sweden is doing just fine. And they're going to come out of this very, very well, I believe. Well, we'd love to keep talking, but uh, I think I think we've come to the end. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Of this of this time this morning. So how can people get how can people find out? I mean, it's really worth people looking at your Twitter feed every day. We look at it every day. And can I just explain to people what's really great about Justin's uh, Twitter feed as well is he creates these graphics that really, you know, because for a lot of people, this da the data is a little overwhelming. And I also think that the media are very, they cherry pick the data in a way to just highlight exactly what we've been discussing, cases, not the actual death numbers. Um, and obviously, as we know that the cases are, it's a very, very unreliable metric on top of everything else. But actually what Justin does is uh, you do these great graphics that are very simple. You also compare the situation that we have with COVID-19 with similar other pandemics, other things like the flu, the, the common flu from the, the last big flu, which caused so much, you know, so, so much death and destruction um, and put things in context. And it's really, really great. Um, and it's, you're doing a public service. We often make the point here on this on this daily virus that the media have just shir completely shirked their responsibility. They have, you know, indulged in panic porn, in doom porn, um, when there's actually an enormous amount of really good news out there. Um, and thanks be to God, we have people like you who are mining the data, data mining and finding out what's really going on and sharing that with people on your Twitter feed at Justin, J-U-S-T-I-N underscore H-A-R-T. And I'd urge everyone to follow Justin and to look at his wonderful graphs that he puts up every day. Well, thanks so much. I'd be amiss if I didn't say my wife is a big fan. She wanted to say hi. She's downstairs taking care of the little one, which I showed you before we came on the air. We've actually got a couple little ones. Between the two of us, we've got seven kids. So wow. we're uh, we're anxious to get our kids back to school for sure. Yeah. Jenny says yeah. hi. And look, um, we so appreciate what you guys are doing, getting it out to new demographics and new you know people that, that may not be considering this for whatever political reasons or whatever brain reasons they have in their head. Just know that the risks are manageable. And yeah. it's going to be okay. 
but we need to, you know, just insert some type of rational ground into our discussion here. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for doing that. And um, we'll we'll keep in touch with you, Justin. I think we need to check in with you every now and again. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, this isn't going to go on for too much longer, but we're a little bit uh, pessimistic on that front. We'll see how it goes. Thanks, okay. folks. Great to see you. Great Take to meet care. you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks Bye. so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was a great interview with Justin. Um, and we need, to, we need get, to get him back on. Yeah, but we're going to be doing a lot more of those Justin-type interviews going forward. Uh, do go to his Twitter feed for unbelievable uh, coverage yeah and really simple you know and really he has these really great graphics that are so simple but really do um highlight the the craziness of what's going on and talking of craziness we're in crazy california of course and we're really kind of it's thursday now we're anxiously awaiting the latest madness from newsom and garcetti um and i just you know to give you an idea of our situation for those of you who are not um here um, this is from the Los Angeles Times. This will give you a kind of an idea of what's going on. So apparently somewhere, um, somewhere out there, um, Mayor Garcetti, there's some kind of graph that they're following, right? This mm. graph. We're apparently in orange film. We're in orange, mm-hmm. but we're really close to red and red's bad, clearly, right? But it's interesting, the Los Angeles Times run this huge story and, and buried, buried, well buried in the story is, is this paragraph that I just thought was magnificent. I actually put that up in my Twitter, my Twitter uh, feed if you're looking for it. Um, you know, while the, so the, the first, the paragraph leading into this is, while the city of Los Angeles COVID-19 threat le- level remains at orange, we're on the border of going to red, Garcetti said on Monday night. It's all up to all of us that we don't. The county, and here's the great the paragraph. The, the good news. The good news, but very new good news that they're not p- pointing out to be good news. The county, that's LA County, is not facing a ventilator or intensive care bed shortage, but the number of hospitalizations is rising. And while the mortality rate has not skyrocketed, as younger people now account for the majority of the new cases, just as we heard from Justin, the number of infections continues to rise. Garcetti said the city is not in the red level territory yet, but that could change if the situation wor- worsens. And I love this. You know, these guys knew some Garcetti, these guys who are drunk on power, they just love to use this school marmy tone, you know. Red, according to Garcetti, is when everything shuts down again to our strictest level. I do not, uh, I do want to warn people that we're close to that, he says. Um, so we're close, apparently, to getting into the red zone, Phelan, which is, I find really, really hard to believe. And we're seeing this happening all over the place. We know that the same thing is sort of happening in Ireland, where they're rowing back the, the openings that they had there. So, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll talk to you tomorrow, um, Friday morning, and see yeah. what, but what latest madness the, we're, we're the, dealing with. The need to destroy the economy to make sure that Trump is not re-elected is overwhelming. The need to have a role for these people is overwhelming, even though there's no shortage of ICU beds or no shortage of ventilators. They're just going to do what they're going to do. And, and no shortage of really, really good news, which is that, yes, the cases, there's lots well, of cases, you, you but heard, there's very few deaths. You heard from Justin. And we heard from Justin, exactly. You know, the number of cases is increasing. The number of deaths is statistically almost irrelevant. Yeah, so, there you go. We'll see you tomorrow night, tomorrow morning. Sorry. Tomorrow morning. We'll and, see you tomorrow morning. And and look forward to that. We're going to have lots more guests, so keep, keep your ears open yeah. and we'll see you then. Soon. Next time. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.